God, we refuse to ask you to be with us. You showed up here long before the first one of us entered the building. You were here waiting, uh, eagerly waiting for your people to be gathered in your name, for uh, the notes from the keyboard and the drums and the guitars to start ringing, and for the voices of your people to begin in worship together. May you be glorified by our time together and through uh, this time in your word together. Uh, give us hearts that are able to see, hear, plant within us things that will grow and bring you glory. Have your way with us and among us. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the Gospel of Mark, is where I wanna start this morning. The Gospel of Mark begins the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Starts like that, and then immediately Mark jumps into quoting Isaiah chapter 40, these words. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And then Mark tells us that John the Baptist was that messenger. And then Mark tells his readers about John the Baptist, about his preaching ministry and his baptizing ministry, and then that he baptized Jesus of all people, the Messiah, Son of God. And then after that, Mark tells his readers about Jesus being sent or led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tested or to be tempted by Satan. And then coming out of that, Mark immediately writes this. After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here's the good news. The time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus had emerged onto the scene in the context of competing kingdoms and kings, warring kings and kingdoms of the world, and he announces this, the time has come. And remember, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, have been waiting for 400 years and he has the nerve or the audacity to announce the time has come, it has arrived, it is here, the kingdom of God is near. Therefore, repent or reconsider, think differently, change your mind, change your way of thinking, again, because the kingdom of God has come near, and it has come near because the king has come near. Jesus emerges on the scene, the king has come, so the kingdom is coming. But what was the kingdom of which he spoke like? What was the kingdom of which he spoke about? What was this kingdom like? The kingdoms of the world were about, at that time as they are at this time, about power and controlling people, and if necessary, squashing people, taxing people, using people in order to strengthen the kingdom. But what was the kingdom of God like. Well, Jesus would go on to tell his people what the kingdom of God was like in dozens and dozens of ways as we read and see in the Gospels. The kingdom of God was coming and near and it was present. It was around and it was among and it was within the people. 
And it was, Jesus said, even in people. The kingdom of God was all of these things and more. It was an upside down kingdom, or rather, it was a right side up kingdom in a world that had gone upside down because of sin. And the kingdom was straightening everything out and showing things as they really were and could be. This was the kingdom, the kingdom of God, and the realm, or that word kingdom can be translated, the rule or the reign of God. The kingdom of God was and is the realm and the reality in which what God wills, you remember Jesus' uh, prayer for his disciples, or the, the prayer he gave his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, those are two sides of the same coin, you know that. The kingdom of God was the realm of reality in which what God wills or intends or wishes or wants or declares happens and is. And what exactly does the kingdom of God look like? Well, it looks like the king. It looks like God. And in so many ways, Jesus goes on to teach his students what God is like in order that they may know what God's kingdom or God's exhibited rule or God's exhibited reign was really, really like. God's dominion, God's authority enacted on earth as it is in heaven. So what was God like if the, rep if the kingdom was representative of the king? This morning I hope to sort of walk through and show us that among other things God was, and as John didn't preach but shared, generous, generous. Which I don't know which translation or which Bible or dictionary you were using, John, uh, but this is from the Oxford, Oxford Dictionary, a definition of generous, because I too like to know what words mean. Uh, generous, first definition, showing a readiness to give more of something, for example, money or time, than is strictly necessary or expected. Number two, showing kindness toward others. Three, larger or more plentiful than is usual or necessary. Generous showing a readiness to give more of something, for example, time or money, than is strictly necessary or expected. And the Bible begins, when you think about it, with a God who is generous, giving to humanity a garden that was beautiful and lovely and satisfying and just the perfect home. And then God gives to those same people, men and women, all of creation to enjoy and to rule over and to name and for their benefit and blessing. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, God said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless, I will bless, I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. And God continued to give. And then as the story goes, God gave to Abraham and his offspring land flowing with milk and honey and later bread every day and provision and protection and promises and prophets. Throughout the Old Testament, we find statements like this one found in Psalm 81. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Fill it. Not little communion wafers, but I'm gonna fill it. And the Israelites did open their mouths, both literally and figuratively, and God did fill them and God sustained them so that seemingly against all odds when you think about it, are the Akkadians still around? Are the Sumerians still around? Are the Mesopotamians still around? Are the Philistines still around? No, but 2,000 years later, there are 15 million Jewish people still around. Does God care about them? Is God generous? 
Of course, almost inevitably, the people of Israel would walk away from God over and over and over through history. They would walk away from God who would continually over and over and over welcome them back just like Hosea the prophet welcomed back his adulterous wife Gomer generously and not dangling over her all of her sin but just pouring out love and goodness to her. Generous. And then there were these 400 years of silence during which the Jewish people hung on the words of the prophets, promises of a day when God would again establish his kingdom or his rule on earth as it is in heaven. And God would do that, and God did. Along came Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, bringing near, nearer than it had ever been, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God. Not bringing it into existence, but making it more accessible and more visible. The time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And now forgive me, uh, those of you uh, men who gather on Friday mornings for Bible study, we were going through the Gospel of John, we just started a few weeks ago, we got to chapter two last Friday, a couple of days ago. Forgive me for double dipping, we recently began this journey It's not just a Friday thing for me, but it's immersive of all of life. Jesus and his disciples at the beginning of chapter two are invited to a wedding banquet in a small town in northern Galilee called Cana. They seem to have known some people there. They hung out in Nazareth, which was a little town not too far away, a few miles away. At some point along the way in this wedding banquet, they run out of wine. Shocking. It happens from time to time in our homes, over history, wherever but to run out of wine at such an occasion in the first century, in that culture, in that context, was about the worst thing that could happen to your family. Shame on your family, shame on the host, shame on the bride and groom, anathema. Shame. You don't run out of wine. You can run out of other things, but you don't run out of wine. To do so would have been this terrible damper on an otherwise festive occasion that would go on for days and days and days in this little village. Enter Jesus, who told the servants at the banquet to fill with water six massive stone jars that were there for water for ceremonial cleansing, the cleansing of their feet ceremonially, the cleansing of their hands before they eat, and on other occasions, Jesus says to the servants, fill those stone jars with water. Then Jesus told those same servants to draw water out of those jars and take it to the master of the banquet. We could call him a wedding coordinator today. Which the servants did only to have the wedding coordinator taste it, see it, smell it, and go into shock and declare to the host for whom he was working of the party, You've saved the best wine for last. What? And people don't do that. You save the best, you use the best, you share, you give, you pour the best wine at the beginning when people's palates are clean and when they're sober-minded and when they can really appreciate it. Normally, a wedding banquet begins with the best wine. And while there are lots of deeper meanings to this story, John's got layer upon layer of what this means, what was happening, of how God's kingdom is interacting with people, and of what would happen soon in in him and through him. There was also the very real, tangible reality of what Jesus did for this people, for this family, for this community, for this bride and groom, for these partygoers. 
pouring out generously, not little communion cups, but again, 150 gallons of wine. Boom, bam. Generous. You remember how Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed, 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 blessed. That's what Jesus announces his kingdom coming is about, God blessing and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out on them and me and you and us over and over and over abundantly. A bit later in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that God causes his son to shine on the good and bad alike, even the bad, generous even to the bad. God causes his reign to come down on the good and the bad, the wicked and the righteous alike. And then toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to his followers, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened or which one of you, if his son or child asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father Abba in heaven give good things to those who simply ask? Again, Jesus paints a picture of a God who is incredibly generous. In chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus begins a parable by saying the kingdom of God is like. You wanna know what the kingdom is like? I'll tell you again, the kingdom of God is like. And then Jesus goes on to describe a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius, a basically one day's wages for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About nine o'clock in the morning, he went out and saw others standing with no work. He says to them the same thing. You guys go work, I'll pay you, go work. And they go, same thing, goes back at noon and finds more workers, I'll pay you, go work in my vineyard. Goes back at five o'clock, sees others still standing around. Do you not have work? You wanna work in my vineyard? Yes, we do, I'll go pay you. I'll pay you as well, go to work. Six o'clock, he comes to pay and he starts handing out a denarius to everyone. Even those who started at five and those who started three and noon and nine. The same thing as those who started at six. And then these words, verse 12. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Don't you agree? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius, one day's wages? Take your pay and go. I want to give if I want to give to the one who was hired last the same as you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And then there's one of Jesus' best known parables in Luke chapter 15. About a father and his two sons, the youngest of which was one, who one day demanded from his father the younger son's inheritance. Right then, right there, even though his father was heart still beating, lungs still pumping, everything, everything's working well. And in that, the younger son says to his father, essentially, you're dead to me. You're as good as dead to me. And we know this as the parable of the prodigal son because the younger son went off to a distant land and blew all that money and his inheritance in wild living, prodigal. Prodigal, 
But as Tim Keller pointed out, maybe those who have gone before us, but we with them, have given this parable a misleading title. The word prodigal, when you look it up in the dictionary, John and me, means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. Definition one, definition two, having or giving something on a lavish scale. And who does this describe? Well, in some ways it's the younger son, but in more ways, the younger son's father who represents God. Who when his younger son finally returned with his head hanging in disgrace, spent what money and resources he had left freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant on a lavish scale throw in a welcome back, welcome home party like they'd never seen before for the younger son. Who was the truly prodigal one in the story? The younger son's foolish, self-centered, self-absorbed. It is the father, the prodigal God, as Keller says, who is truly prodigal, truly lavish, truly generous in every way, shape, or form in ways that we don't see on earth in our normal experience. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and, was, and is now found, so they began to celebrate. And I could go on, and you could go on, and we could just go through the Gospels and the Scriptures and the New Testament and Jesus over and over and over. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women, plus children, not once but twice. If any of you lacks wisdom, let, God ask, let him ask God who gives generously to all who seek him. Blessed be, God and the, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Paul to the Ephesians. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Paul to the Romans. For God so loved the world that he gave really all that he had or what was closest to him and meant most to him. His son, we say, use those words to try to describe how God gave himself fully, his beloved, to us. And the point is and reality is that the God we know in the scriptures and the God who became incarnate in Jesus and the kingdom or the reign or the rule presently right now in this world and accessible to you and me today is characterized by generosity. I don't know if we, I don't know if, I don't know if that's how you would start telling the story. I doubt that's kind of how the world envisions Christianity or the God worshiped by Christians. But that's how the scriptures characterize God. Some people see God primarily as strict teacher or judge or other things, images, ways. Not everyone has the understanding that God is, at God's truest self, generous. Not everyone has known God in that way. Some people have imagined that God was well, maybe sort of generous, like a spiritual Santa Claus or like a grand heavenly cosmic genie or butler who exists to do our bidding or to grant our wishes or to give us what we want or what we think we need or to make us rich in the world's things. That's called the prosperity gospel, which really misses and twists kind of the biblical message to make God serving us. 
which isn't really the story. Some people have imagined God to be spiritual Santa Claus or like a grand heavenly cosmic genie or butler, but God isn't those things. He's not that way, and neither is his kingdom. But God is generous in all his ways. Some of us grew up with a mindset of scarcity. There's not enough. There will never be enough. And so that sort of, I remember some of that when we were kids. Is there going to be enough food? Am I going to get some of that before it's all gone? I better get it now while there's still some available. And we grew up with a mindset that there's not enough. And if I want something, I better go get it now and get it for myself. Or we grew up in a world that explicitly or implicitly says you better get everything you can right now. Collect all your toys and your cookies and everything you can right now because life here on earth is about getting ahead, which presumes getting ahead of them and them and them and them and then them. Or getting more and more. That life is about accumulating or having or possessing more of this or that. And yet the scriptures and Jesus teach exactly the opposite while affirming that everything belongs to God, the God who is ultimately generous. And so we talk about it, and Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, right? Right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, now we know a little bit more about what the kingdom is like. And to live in the kingdom is, and this is what Jesus talks about more than anything else you know, to live in this kingdom that he calls people to seek is to live my life as Jesus would live my life if he was in my shoes. Not to be Jesus or to live his life, but to live my life as if Jesus was in my shoes. And to do so connected to him with his power and in his name. Seek first the kingdom of God and this is what the kingdom is like. This doesn't translate into trying to be generous, but it translates into having our eyes on the king who we come to discover is radically generous, and then to live in his way. And as we do, seek first the kingdom of God, and everything will be given to you as well. When we seek first the kingdom and the king, and to live in his way by his power and in his name, we're actually doing something inadvertently, seeing how he is, and our lives are transformed. Not into a place of not having enough, but into a place where we're in relation with a God who promises more than we'll ever need. And so while we're doing this thing with and in relation to stewardship, which is a funny, weird church word that means taking care of what God gave us or entrusted to us, stewarding, taking care, being a good caretaker of that with which God has entrusted us. God doesn't need any of his stuff that he's entrusted to you and me. He actually doesn't need it. If he did need it, he wouldn't have entrusted it to us, right? He doesn't need the church. This church doesn't need my dollars or your dollars to accomplish whatever God has for us to do. And yet God can and will and chooses to use your dollars, his dollars entrusted to us for his purposes, but only in and as we are generous, as we practice generosity. I heard uh, on NPR uh, 
not long ago, an interview with a woman named Isabel Allende, and she's a, a, a writer from Latin America. And she said this more than once, more than once, and of all the things she said and talked about, this stuck. You only have what you give. You only have what you give. Which reminded me of some words of Martin Luther, the 15th, 16th century, 1500s reformer, who said, I've tried to keep in my hands and lost them all. I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all. But what I have given into God's hands, I still possess. I have tried to keep things in my hands and lost them all. But what I have given into God's hands or trusted God with, trusted the generous God with, I still possess. And so that's sort of how the kingdom works. God's calling us, he's inviting us into his life. And his life, as is his kingdom, is characterized by generosity. The funny thing growing up is that I wanted to be a generous person, but I didn't want to give away. I didn't want to let go. Has anyone ever had that? Is that anyone else's story? Secretly, nobody? Three people? Like how many of us want to think of ourselves as generous, but are just holding on really tight? How paradoxical that is. But in the gospel, Jesus says you can trust that everything you need will be given to you. Just seek first. Seek first above all things and in first priority. His kingdom, governed by the king, who is characterized by incredible, incredible generosity. And all that you've ever had or wanted or needed will be taken care of. Glory to him. Let's pray. God, we confess uh, the breadth and depth of our sin and sinfulness and selfish bent and proclivities. Have mercy on us. Show us again the better way. Forgive our sin and our rebellion and our brokenness repair the things that need repairing, heal us, fill us with the joy of your salvation, be glorified through the people you are healing, draw us back to yourself and into your kingdom of love continually. We thank you and praise you for your generous nature toward us and toward all people. May your generosity be known inside and outside the church May your glory cover the earth. May your name be praised. Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.